If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be focusing on verse 5 this morning. At 6.06 a.m. on October 28th, Dr. Gregory Victor Lowe had exited his temporary residence. He'd been unconscious in his last hours, but on leaving his body, his faculties immediately sharpened. Time had passed, if time still was. The time or day on earth was unknown and irrelevant here, wherever here was. For the first moments, Doc thought he was dreaming. This was the only possible explanation for his conscious appraisal of his body lying on his hospital bed. He felt free, liberated, relieved, as one who had escaped from the confinement of the body. But this changed almost instantly as he sized up the situation. He was out of his body, which meant he was dead. He realized in a flash inside he had been wrong all those years and thinking that life ended with death. He had said there was no soul, but a soul is exactly what he was and had been all along. He had not ceased to exist. Indeed, the very idea of a person ceasing to exist was ludicrous. People did not die. They merely relocated from one place to another. Such an exit could never be mistaken for a move from existence to non-existence, except by short-sighted, egocentric people in one room who thought that whenever someone went into another, they must no longer exist. A sickening feeling of foreboding gripped him. He was unprepared for this realm, and it was now too late to prepare. Doc knew instinctively that there, that whatever lay ahead of him would never end. This truth was self-evident. He felt embarrassed and foolish. He had ever thought otherwise. How could he have been so deceived? Doc looked around uneasy, trying to get his bearings. Where were the others? He could see and hear no one. Where was everybody? Doc had never felt so utterly alone. There was an invisible fence. He could sense it, a limiting wall that could not be penetrated, an iron curtain locking him in, preventing any escape. This was confinement, much worse. It was solitary confinement. He kept hoping it was only temporary. The more he thought, the angrier Doc became. How could God do this to me? If God was a God of love, he would offer me a way out. He would not allow himself to realize God's love had indeed made a way out at an immense cost to himself or to realize this way had been explained to him many times by one of his best friends and others as well. He had rejected the way. He wanted another way, a way that would not force him to confess his wrongdoings, a way that would recognize and reward his goodness, those he had helped, his contribution to humanity, a way that didn't require him to crawl on his knees like a sniveling beggar. He would find his own way. He always had before. Yet even as he said this to himself, he sensed the rope slipping through his hands. Verses of the Bible he had tried to ignore were thrust upon him, flashed back into his mind. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No other way. Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other way. It was God's way or none. He felt a burning, a fury welling up inside of him, anger and bitterness, unfocused hostility, frustration leading him to lash out. The pain began to sink deeper in, creating a desperate desire for relief. 
It was a pain far worse than any he had ever felt before. Doc thirsted for help, but not redemption. He hungered for hope, but not righteousness. He longed for friendship, but not with those who followed God. He could see in his mind's eye Dante's sign that hung over the entrance to hell's inferno. Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. Already his last shred of hope was fleeing from him. He panicked. The God he insisted did not exist And he did not want or need had granted him his wish to have him once and for all out of his life. He realized now that there was no life without the creator and sustainer of life. This was existence, not life. This was eternal death. For the moment, Doc was filled with grief, but it was quickly replaced with anger and outrage much deeper than before. How dare God do this to him? Suddenly heard a sound. A terrible sound, so awful it proved him wrong when he thought that any sound would be welcome. It was an almost human sound, but more like an animal wreathing in agony. A sound of moaning, building to a horrible scream. It went on and on, torturing him. It's only consolation, the fact that someone or something else must be here with him. Suddenly he realized the terrible truth. The scream was his. That is a condensed extract from Randy Alcorn's murder mystery fiction thriller Deadline. Scary, but not as scary as the truth. We have been looking at Luke twelve four through 9, a text where Jesus is teaching us that we should not fear men, but God. Jesus has exposed and rebuked the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. Both privately and publicly, he has warned his disciples in front of those religious leaders, in front of the crowd that has rejected him, to beware of hypocrisy, for it is both contagious and damning. He knows his disciples are fearful of the consequences they may suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and the crowd, for Jesus has offended them, turning them into his enemies by telling them the truth. Jesus, knowing their fear, addresses it. First, he says... We should not be afraid to die at the hands of men because after they kill us, there's nothing else that they can do. Secondly, he says we should be afraid to die at the hand of God, specifically Christ himself, because Jesus lets them know that he is the one who casts people into hell. Look at Luke twelve five in your Bibles. Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Here Jesus both warns and commands us to fear him. In fact, he gives two identical commands, passive heiress commands, fear First, fear the one. Secondly, fear him. Both commands are passive, which means we, in the light of understanding who Jesus is, that he is not only the loving Savior, but the executioner who casts people into hell, we should allow that knowledge to cause us to fear him. Jesus wants us to fear him because he casts people into hell. But there is a problem today. We talked about it in detail last week. Most people are ignorant of hell. They deny the existence of hell. They lie to themselves. And even if they say, well, maybe there might be a hell, but if there is, I'll go there and party with my buddies. 
Or maybe they lie to themselves saying, well, hell is just a place where you're burn up eternally gone. They choose to believe a lie that they might continue to live in sin without fear. For most people, though, hell is just a swear word and nothing more. The ignorance of hell, even in churches, is primary the fault of preachers who, out of the fear of men, out of the love for popularity, don't preach on hell. Because after all, it's kind of a negative doctrine and uh, they don't want to drive people away from their church or they don't want to lose their ratings in the sight of the masses. And so they ignore this great doctrine. As we learned last week, there is a 13 times... Uh, greater repetition of text addressing judgment and hell than the love of God. It is not that it is some minor doctrine. In comparison to the love of God, the love of God is the minor doctrine. I mean, if we're going to go by frequency, we would have to agree that the love of God is the minor doctrine. And yet what we have today is we have Christians who talk about being saved, but they never even stop to ask themselves, what am I being saved from? The thought of salvation doesn't bring to their minds escaping from hell and the wrath to come. Salvation to them is merely going to heaven. That's all. The fact is we need to be saved from Jesus himself, who is not only the savior, but the executioner and judge. Today, people try to do evangelism without talking about hell, without talking about judgment, without talking about the wrath of God. Imagine that. Indeed, they tell people that Christ can do a lot of great things for them. Their gospel presentation is, why don't you believe in Jesus? He'll make you have a good marriage. He'll make you have obedient children. He'll make you happy. He'll, he'll do all these things for you. It's never about fleeing from the wrath to come. I mean, why use the word save if there's nothing to be saved from? That's the concept that they have of salvation is you can either live like a sinner and enjoy the pleasure of the world or get religious and get to go to heaven. As Paul says in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And the reason they have no fear of God before their eyes is they have no doctrine of hell in their heart. So for the last two weeks, we have addressed the doctrine of hell. We have learned from the word of God that hell is a real place, a place of unimaginable pain and suffering, a place where atheists and agnostics end up. A place where... All who believe in false religions end up a place where some who say they believe in God and Jesus end up because they've never been born again. A place where some very religious people who attend church and serve end up because they've never really been saved by grace. Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen, the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. He goes on to say the way is narrow that leads to life and few there are who find it. He says in Luke thirteen twenty four, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
Many thinking they are on their way to heaven will end up in hell. We need to let that fact sink into our minds. It is a truth that many, many religious people will end up in hell. Because of this, I want to take you on a mental trip to hell. As Tim warned you. I want you to see in your mind the place where millions right now, today, are suffering. Two truths are explicit in the pages of scripture. If you die unconverted, never having been born again, you will end up in hell. And two, if you end up in hell, you will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The death rate is still holding at 100% and you cannot escape. The author of Hebrews says that it is in as much as it appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. If you die unconvicted, you will be judged and sentenced to hell. Then some people say, well, but I'm a Christian. I can't end up in hell. Are you sure you're a Christian? Will you bet your eternal soul on it? Because that is what you do every day. You've got your soul on the margin. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? 21 that many on the day of judgment will cry out lord lord and explain all the good deeds that they have done in the name of the lord in the church of the lord and then jesus says in verse 23 i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness could that be you could that be you are very religious people even involved in church even doing good deeds thinking you're saved thinking you're on the way your way to heaven And then only to discover when it's too late that you can't do anything about it. Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. If you come on Sunday nights, you have heard the testimonies of men and women who grew up in Christian homes, who went to Christian schools, who went to Christian colleges, who attended church, who served, who told everybody they were saved, who thought they were saved and then became saved. God opened their eyes to the truth that they were lost. For years, they deceived parents and husbands and wives and an entire church. By the grace of God, they were actually saved from the wrath to come. After years of sitting where you're sitting right now, hearing the gospel Sunday after Sunday. Do you profess to know Jesus, but with your deeds deny him? John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That word abides means to remain, stay, camp out over. It hangs over you. God's fury. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 19, Ephesians 5, 4, all proclaim that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The question is, is that you? You say, well, I'm a believer. You know, a mere profession of faith in Jesus won't save you. Just saying you believe doesn't make you a Christian. 
You must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. In 1 John 2, 4, it says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 9 says, The one who says, He is in the light, and yet hates his brothers in darkness until now. In 1 John 3.10, we read by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. James says in James 2.14, if a man says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? The answer is no, because saving faith is transforming faith. That produces good works. It's not that you're saved by good works. You're saved by grace unto works. Jesus doesn't save you and transform you into a new creature so you can live for Satan. But for his glory. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 7:12, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Here, God is pictured as the executioner for the man who will not turn from his sins. The Lord Jesus Christ sharpens his sword. He knocks an arrow. He lifts his arm for the fatal blow. He pulls back the string to let fly the arrow at that person who will not repent. Saving grace causes you to turn away from sin, not towards it. So the question is, what does your life indicate is happening right now? Have you been saved by grace that works? Or do you merely profess to be saved? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 that people perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice, he did not say They perish because they did not receive the truth. He says it's because they did not receive the love of the truth. Many receive the truth. Many are called. Many hear the word of God preached. Many read their Bibles. But because they don't love the truth and the Lord of that truth, they perish. Though well-informed. You know, I have no surefire way of telling who is and who isn't saved. You know, if I had some sort of scanner, I would scan all of you and all of you who aren't saved. I'd put you in a different room and we'd have somebody preach the gospel to you every week until you were able to come into this room where I would teach you an exposition of Scripture. But since I don't know... Since I have been fooled many times, since I had people come into my office saying, you know what, I just gave my life to Christ. I, I, there's been times I thought, you're kidding me. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So let's just suppose for the rest of our time this morning that none of us are saved. Let's just suppose that we think we're saved, but we're not. Well, one of those many that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, we call Jesus Lord, we come to church, we do good works. After the service, you are visiting with your friends and talking about where you're going to have lunch or joking, you're laughing. 
having a good time. Little do you know that there is a swollen blood vessel in your brain that is about to burst. Then in a moment without warning, without pain, that blood vessel does burst and you collapse to the ground unconscious. Though heroic efforts are taken to try and revive you, your vitals stop and you are dead. Right in front of the church building after the service. And you've never been born again. Our single point for this morning, in hell you will suffer the wrath of God and will be tormented forever and ever. Physically dead, you feel yourself falling into what Revelation 9 calls the bottomless pit or the abyss. You panic and begin to flail, but there's nothing to grab onto, nothing to hold onto. You just feel yourself being pulled down by the justice of Christ. Down, down into this fiery dungeon. And as you fall, the temperature increases. You are falling into an eerie darkness. Not complete darkness, for there's just enough light for you to see what a terrible situation you are in. And having died without Christ, his wrath does not delay, but rushes upon you with fury. He is angry with you. He is incensed with you. He's furious and intent on seeing you begin your eternal sentence immediately. He offered you the free gift of eternal life, which he purchased with his own blood on the cross. And you rejected that. And now he's glad he is happy. He is taking pleasure in the execution of his justice upon your soul. Some of you are saying, well, this, I mean, come on, <laughs> Jesus isn't that way, is he? Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6 describes Jesus. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the men of bloodshed and deceit. You know that is you. You know you're that person. And you feel like you have been shoved into the mouth of a fiery volcano and mercy is over. Grace is over. The time for compassion is over. God's long suffering has come to an end. The day of salvation has passed. Isaiah 5.14 says, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and you are being swallowed up by the great monster of death, which is eager to devour you. It is clear to you, every day you lived on earth, you lived off of God's undeserved, unearned grace. But now that that grace is gone forever and the well is dry, you are lost And Christ is eager to see his justice satisfied upon you for the sins you have committed against his holiness. You think I'm exaggerating? Do you think this is some sort of morbid fictional tale I am weaving? Be warned, hell is far worse than the words of mortals can ever tell. Do you think that Jesus, the sweet, loving Savior, does not long to see sinners punished? My friends, it is because you have forgotten he is not only the loving Savior, but he is the just and holy executioner. Look at Luke 9, verse 49, where Jesus, while on earth, says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. He desires it to be kindled. He longs for judgment. Judgment. 
because he is holy. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 41 through 43, we learn a little bit better about who Jesus is. The Lord says this. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries. Here we learn about God's flashing sword. Swords do not flash when they are in their scabbards. Swords flash when they are drawn out to strike the blow. They flash when they are drawn to run someone through. And if you die unrepentant, Jesus' sword will flash again and again. Pain, excruciating pain, will run you through for all eternity. But that is not all. He also pulls out the bottomless quiver of arrows. Drawing on that bow, making them drunk with your blood. They strike you over and over again. You feel the pain. You feel the fiery shafts of his fury enter within you. And it never ends. It never ends for you must be ever dying, but never dead. He is satisfying his justice upon your soul. Psalm 11, 5 through 7 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. We came this morning and there was rain falling. Little cool drops of rain falling on our skin. But in hell, those drops will be snares, snares to capture, snares to kill, fire and brimstone. Brimstone is molten sulfur when it strikes your naked form, splattering, spreading, burning, pelting you with red hot fire. The pain is beyond description. You are falling into the firestorm of God's wrath in hell. Recently, we saw what firestorms can do. I think if you remember the fires that went through the Malibu area, it was amazing to see that when the fire came through, it wasn't that the houses were kind of burnt in a pile. There was nothing there. Even the the concrete foundations were turned into rubble. Superheated air filled with burning cinders destroyed once beautiful homes, the wood, the stucco, the pipes, the wiring, everything turned into ash. And you were in that wind, that Firestorm, but worse, for you will be ever burning, but never dead. Jesus, quoting Isaiah 66, 24 and Mark 9, 48, describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quench. The picture there is of worms that are always devouring you, always devouring you. But you become this eternal food for worms and you become eternal fuel for fire because the worm never dies because you never die. And the fire is not quenched because you will never quit burning. 
In Isaiah 63.3, the Lord describes his holy response to the wicked, saying, I've trodden the wine trough alone, and the form and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. Here the Lord describes himself as one who crushes grapes alone. When making wine, sometimes they were put into a trough. Someone would get into that trough, trample them to release the juices. And here you are the grape. And the one who is treading upon you is God Almighty. He is crushing you. He is trampling upon you in his anger and holy fury. He stomps on you so forcefully you are crushed and your life blood is splattered out on his pure white garments. The picture is terrifying. Jesus in his wrath pulverizing you in holy rage, crushing you, stomping on you. His justice glad to be satisfied in your destruction. And as you are trodden by the wrath of God, questions flood your mind. How did I not see these things in the pages of scripture? Why didn't I flee from the wrath to come? But as soon as the questions come, so do the answers. Because I loved my sin. Because I would not have Jesus reigning over me. Because I made my own idol named Jesus who would never cast sinners into hell. And I worship that idol. And you despair. But tell yourself, I'm just going to have to endure. But now. The prophet Nahum, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, says in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and a storm in his way, the clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved at his presence. The world and all of its inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. You are in hell. You are Jesus' enemy. You realize that all your life you have been storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous son of God and that day has come. Every sin you committed added to the fury which the mercy of God, which you presumed upon and which was held back by that mercy is now let go. You are dead and that great vat of God's wrath, which hung over your head all your life is now being poured out upon you as if a great dam has burst. The waters of God's terrorizing fury have rushed upon you. And since the Lord is great in power, no almighty in power, his fury is immeasurable and you cannot endure it. You have sowed the wind and now you reap the fiery tornado of Jesus' retribution. You are chaff and he is the firestorm. He is the fire that burns with heat so intense it can dry up the sea. And that fury 
that heat, that fire is poured out on you. You hoped you could brace yourself, fortify yourself, strengthen yourself in order to have some rest. But who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? And though you cannot endure it, you must endure it for his justice holds you in its way. And as you descend, falling into that bottomless pit, Jesus in anger pursues you into darkness. In Matthew 25, 50, 24, 51, Jesus tells us what he would do to that evil slave. I will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, despair, despair, so great pain, so severe, it causes you to just gnash your teeth. You maybe you've seen a little child who has hurt themselves and don't have control over their spirit and you go to help them and they're just, no, don't touch me. Lashing out in anger, rage in hell. It will be like this, but worse. You will weep without tears, gnash your teeth like a wild animal caught in a trap. And as you suffer death, as you suffer Pain that never ends. You are angry at yourself. You are angry at Christ. You're angry at others because they didn't prevent you from coming to this place. Then in a moment, the pain stops. You think, what is happening? You say to yourself, what is happening? And you weep with joy because the pain has stopped. It is stopped. You're out of hell. You have been saved. You have a body. You have been resurrected. Unspeakable relief floods your previously tormented soul. You look around and no, it couldn't be. There in the distance you see a great white throne. On it sits one radiant in splendor and glory. It is Jesus and the sight of him fills your soul with dread. John, the apostle, describes what he looks like in Revelation 1, verses 13 through 18. I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength and when i saw him i fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying do not be afraid i am the first and the last the living one i was dead and behold i'm alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades and the moment you see that glorious face you are filled with terror you jerk your head away so that you don't have to look into those eyes Yet you feel his power turn your head towards him so that you have to look at him. He forces you to look into his face, to be terrorized by those fiery eyes for what you see in them is the very hell that you have been suffering. You can see the great white throne. You can hear the thunder of his voice and every word melts your heart like wax. If I could only faint, you say to yourself. If I could only die, you say to yourself. But he will not let you, for you must be always dying, but never dead. 
surrounded by holy angels looking at you with stern faces, you move towards that throne. You see friends and family members and Sunday school teachers, co-workers who shared the gospel with you, who kept telling you about Jesus over and over again. They all look at you with no pity, no remorse, no grief. There is your dear mother and father standing side by side now perfectly, holy, supernaturally fortified. They stare at you in shame and disgust. Your blood is not on their heads. Memories of your parents talking to you about the gospel, taking you to church, sharing Bible stories with you, flood your mind. They tried, but you rejected your own salvation. You would not be saved. You see Satan up ahead, that great deceiver, the dragon of old being judged first. You see him bowing at the foot of the great white throne. And after the evidence is given and judgment is passed, Satan kneels before his creator. Then Michael, the great prince, strong and determined, comes forward along with Gabriel, the one who stands in the presence of God. Each grabs one of Satan's arms and carries him kicking and screaming, uttering, uttering ter- terrible blasphemies. They dr- take him over to the lake of fire and they drop him into that infernal lake. Then the demons are judged next. Then the beast and the false prophet. Then you hear familiar names of men sentenced. The first one you recognize is Cain. The judgment goes on and on. You see one after another, small and great, approach the lamb who sits on the throne. They all bow, trembling before him. Acknowledging him as Lord, angels carrying them away after being sentenced into that same lake of fire. With each sentence, your terror increases as you are forced to watch. Soon you find yourself on your knees before the king of kings, the one from whose presence heaven and earth flee away. The one who left his glory, who lived a perfect life, who was tortured, who suffered the wrath of God for your sake out of love for you. That very same man who offered you the free gift of eternal life, which you would not have, speaks to you with the voice of thunder. The terror is unbearable. You want to cry out, you want to scream, but power is holding you in check. As the books are open with supernatural efficiency, every sinful thought, every sinful deed is passed before your mind. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are guilty and you deserve what you are getting. As you quiver in the presence of the king, he finally utters with that voice, like many waters, depart from me, a cursed one, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for Satan and his angels. Two strong angels grab you by the arms. You look to Christ for mercy, but he is now focused on the person standing behind you. You are carried up over that lake, and as you approach, you see multitudes of demon and sa- demons and Satan himself thrashing in anger and fury in that unquenchable fire. You are let go. You drop down. You fall. You feel the heat. You see the demons. You smell the stench of sulfur and innumerable multitude of the dam crowded in that lake. You plunge into those flames. You feel that panic people feel when they are drowning, but it never subsides. The fires of hell surround you and enter into you. The terrifying reality strikes you. This is where I will be forever. So, 
let's return to the land of the living. You're still alive and you're in your pew. And some may be thinking, well, Pastor Jack, I mean, come on, you are morbid. You have really gone overboard here. I mean, you've really, you know, tried to make hell sound scary. It is scary. I hope you notice that every figure of speech I used came from the Bible. Every one. I went over it about five times to make sure. And you might be wondering, you know, what, what is the purpose of all this? I mean, you're just trying to scare us or what? Well, there are 12 reasons why we did this this morning. I'll just give them to you very quickly as we near the end. 12 reasons why we took a little mental trip to hell. The first reason, because it is in the text before us, Jesus wants you to fear him because he cast people into hell and hell is worse than I have described. Secondly, because it will help you fear Jesus Christ and obey his command. Third, because it will motivate you to obey Christ in every other area. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Four, because it will cause you to overflow with thanksgiving for your salvation from hell. If you know Christ, praise God, you don't have to go to that place. I mean, you could have the worst day at work possible and be sitting around going, hmm, 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 hmm. If you think about this sermon, you'll be happy. I don't care what happens to you on this earth. If you're not going to hell, you have something to be thankful for. Five, because it will make you love the Lord all the more for saving you from what you deserve. I mean, look at what he's done. Look at who you are. Look at who he is. And look at what he went through to save you. Six, because it will make you more diligent to share the gospel with others. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Think, oh, should I show the gospel with that person? Think of that person in hell. Share the gospel. Drop the bomb. Seven, because it will help you have a better appreciation of Jesus's holiness, justice, wrath, and severity. Eight, because it will help you keep from loving this present world and sin more than Christ and the glories to come. Nine, because it will make you understand the magnitude of God's grace, mercy, kindness, forbearance, love, compassion, goodness towards you and others who are still alive today. Ten, because it will help you live your life in light of eternity to keep you focused on what's going to happen forever, not what's going to happen today. Eleven, because it will cause you to flee from sin and temptation. And twelve, so that if you don't know Christ, you will flee from the wrath to come. Because you realize that right now, God's wrath is remaining, staying, abiding over you. Do you understand that you are a sinner? Do you understand that you are not perfect like God is? 
And because of that, if you break one law, you break them all. And God will by no means allow the guilty go unpunished. He has to punish sin. Do you understand who Jesus is? That he is God in human flesh, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life. And why did he do all that? Out of love for sinners. That he died on the cross, that he suffered God's wrath, that he took upon himself the sins of the world, that he bore that punishment you deserved. Unjustly so, willingly of his own free initiative, so that anybody who could believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did that for you. As many as received him, the scriptures say, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Have you done that? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about agreeing with the facts. The demons believe the facts. I mean, if you've been here very long, I know you know the facts. I tell you them almost every week. What I want to know is, do you love the Lord? Have you been transformed by his grace? Have you been changed into that new creature? Is your life about God, about loving God and serving God and giving glory to God? Or is church just kind of a barnacle that sticks on to the rest of your life and what you're doing? Why did I preach on hell this morning? Because I don't want anybody here going to hell. Your blood is not on my head. I have warned you. I have told you how to escape the wrath to come. And if you reject that, there may be a day, and it may be today, that you will realize how foolish you were to reject Christ. Nobody knows when they're going to die. You could die at any moment. I mean, some people have vapors that last longer than others, but they're still vapors. So as we pray, I am going to pray primarily for those who here who may not know Christ and for the rest of us that we would apply these truths. Let's pray. Father, we come before you marveling at the terror of your holiness. Father, we have seen and been convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt from your word this morning that Jesus, though loving, though compassionate, though gracious, that we came to the earth first time, the first time in humility and allowed himself to be put to death at the hands of men is now in glory. He's coming back, dealing out retribution to those who do not love him, to those who will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Father, I pray that if there is anybody here who doesn't know you, anybody here who has never repented of their sins, anybody here who before this time was trading a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath, I pray that they would pitch that pleasure, pitch that sinful lifestyle, quit living for themselves, and place their faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his justifying resurrection, that they might be saved and live forevermore. Father, we want to please you. We want to glorify you. Help us to dwell on hell. And may it motivate us to be the kind of people you would have us to be, as we have mentioned. And may all of this happen for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. Amen. If you are a